Go on in, Don. Hi, how are you? Good. Go ahead and close the door if you would. Yay. Keep it quiet. Yay. I'm so excited. Are you? Why? I don't know. Because I've never done this before. Well, it's fun. <laughs> I don't know if I'm fun. I'm eccentric, that's for sure. I'm eccentric trying to keep your colleague from losing her mind. Which one? Uh, Andrea. Because I know she's got deadlines, so I'm almost done with all my test questions for the week. Mine, anyway, so that'll be finished. Awesome. Thank you. Well, don't say, th I don't know if it's thank you. It's just, I'll be so glad when June comes. And then you guys can, you know, waste, not waste, you guys can fill up your summer with curriculum mapping. And, uh, and, and then uh, by this time next year, we'll all be like, yeah, we pretty much know where 99% of everything is and what we missed and what we've got to fill in. And yeah. it's going to be such a good thing for the overall milieu of the college. Yeah, I think just having... Once May, well, June, yeah, once it's done, yeah. I think we'll just have it done. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. clock and we'll go. Hello everybody, this is Dr. Todd Fredericks, DO. This is an Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in beautiful Athens, although cold right now, Athens, Ohio, um, where we teach the best uh, general uh, medical physicians on the planet, many of whom go on to be specialists, but all of them are specialists in their own right. And um, the, the background of this, seg this series of episodes um, is as follows. The older I get as a clinician, the more I realize that American healthcare is pretty mature. Uh, we have the benefit in the United States of pretty good food and pretty good water, and we don't die of really bad things like Mar Marburg and you know Ebola in record numbers. Um, and so most Americans enjoy a pretty good level of health if they don't do things to hurt themselves, like you know excessive smoking and drinking. And so a lot of the problems that we face in day-to-day practice are in the realm of cognitive and behavioral problems, issues that affect people, whether or not it's, it's spiritual issues, social family issues, things that, you know, um, maybe respond to medication, but frequently that's not really the solution. The real solution is a, a, a period of time, and time is the key word there, where a person understands they have support, they have someone that can help guide them, and you get to the two individuals that can help them work through how they're working through problems in life. And this has dramatic implications, and it's well known and well documented that these, uh, these things affect people's overall health, physiologically, anatomically, all that. And so it's really important that we talk about the, the field of, um, of patient care called psychology. And I happen to have a wonderful opportunity in that where I work, we have a psychologist 
I won't hold it against her that she's a Hoosier, but I will say, because she's from, she's from Indiana, and her whole life is from Indiana except for OU, and we're really glad because we stole her from the Indianans. If you know anything about the Midwest, if you're listening on the other side of the world, Indiana and Ohio really aren't that much different. We're all nice. Everybody makes nice. Yeah. Yeah, the whole point of the Midwest is make nice, is everybody gets along. So you like to joke about those people in Indiana, and they probably joke about those weirdos in Ohio. They're all the same people. They really are. But so well, who I have today is Don Graham, and Don Graham has a Ph.D. in psychology. And we're going to have a nice conversation today, I think, Don, about psychology. So hello, Don. Hi, Todd. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> Don also has the distinction of being one of my overlords. And, ri- and right now we're in the process of trying to build curriculum. And so Don is, she is a very gracious person to, to work with as an instructor of record for the Return to Wellness course at Ohio University. And so uh, let's start, let's, let's start about this. Don, tell us about your background. Tell us where you came from, how you ended up at Athens, Ohio, and not in Valparaiso, Indiana. Sure. So I actually ended up I almost ended up in Valparaiso, Indiana, uh, where I worked for private practice. Um, and OU, I had no intentions of falling in love with Southeastern Ohio. Uh, I was finishing up school. Um, I had a prior life doing counseling, and then I went back for my, my graduate degree at Purdue. Um, the Boilermaker. Boiler. I am Boiler. Do you have a T-shirt? I have many T-shirts, yes. Do you really? Yes, many. You ever been to a football game? Yes. That's big. Yes. Keep going. Purdue, IU. Purdue, IU. We are IU. house divided. My husband's an IU. <laughs> but that's okay. We all like corn. Um, That's right. So we're very, we're very Hoosier. Yeah, yeah very Hoosier. <laughs> um, so my background is in um, psychology uh, and music. I started out actually in, as, as a music major, and um, I quickly decided that I had loved psychology and I just never could stop. Um, I really loved helping people. And so my journey was that I went through my bachelor's degree in southern Indiana and then my master's degree in Valparaiso University in northern Indiana. And then I took about five years and I worked in um, Michigan City and LaPorte area schools and ended up going uh, and working for the University of Chicago and training in neuropsychology and setting up neuropsych clinics all over Indiana, which was always interesting because uh, I'd go to the cornfields of Indiana and I'd say neuropsychology and they'd say neuro what? And I'd say, neuropsychology, is that neurology? No, nah, not quite. Psychiatry? Nah, not quite. Psychology? Well, kind of, but psychology with the brain. Um, and that was a fascinating opportunity. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to make more change um, and uh, from a larger systemic issue. And to do that, I needed more letters. Um, and so I drug my then boyfriend, fiance, down to Lafayette, Indiana, and finished my PhD at Purdue. I was finishing my internship um, and kind of like a medical residency, you don't necessarily know where you're going to end up. And I called him and I'm like, we're going to end up in Athens, Ohio. And he said, where's Athens? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, is it by Columbus? I'm like, I don't know, but we're moving there for a year with every intention of just staying here a year. And that was 10 years ago this summer. So uh, that, that, that is the long and the short of it. Yeah. And you're, so now you, I know you're permanently welded to Athens because of the Pawpaw Festival. I am. Yeah. Yes. So we'll get into the Pawpaw <laughs> Festival le- later. This is something that is really important to get into because if you're from Athens, there's Pawpawers and there's non Pawpawers. But we're going to talk about what Pawpaw is because Don has a relationship with the Pawpaw Festival. Love the Pawpaw. Yeah, I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so why? What about psychology? Why did you? I mean, here's young Don uh, Don Zalowski. Kajowski. Kajowski. Close. Polish. 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 And if you saw Dawn, you'd say, yeah, she's Polish. Blonde hair, blue eyes. She's, she looks like a Polish person. I know a lot of Polish people. I work with them in the military, and they're good folks. But why is this little girl of American, of Polish descent, out in the middle of cornfields of Iowa thinking, I'm going to be a psychologist? What, what, what was it that drew you to that? Well, 
That's a great question. Um, so when I was a kid, I liked helping people. Um, and as I was in high school, unfortunately, my my paternal grandmother developed Alzheimer's disease. And I that came out around the same time as um, uh, that Robin Williams movie when he was a music therapist. Not uh, Mr. Holland's opus. Yeah. No, that's uh, Richard Dreyfuss. That was, yeah. There was a Robin Williams movie? Yeah, he played a psychiatrist. Anyway, uh, what happened was, as I was visiting my grandmother in the nursing home, and she had far advanced. I mean, she was mute for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, Very, very far advanced Alzheimer's, which is an awful disease if you've ever seen it. Terrible. And um, we was visiting her at the nursing home, and she was in the big group room, and the music therapist was in there. And they were singing an old song from the 20s. Five foot two, eyes of blue, has anybody seen my girl? And my grandmother had not spoken for years. And all of a sudden, she bursts out into song. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like this woman has not talked. She and I were very close when I was growing up. She helped raise me. And she had she had been totally mute. And then she burst into song. And I was about 16 at the time. And I thought, what an incredible brain we have that it could make somebody mute for so many years. She didn't even know who my dad was. Like, she thought he was the doctor, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, she remembered all these lyrics to this song. And she had a beautiful singing voice. It just came out of nowhere. And just as soon as it went out went out into the, the universe, it sucked back into her brain. And hmm. I thought, I need to know more about the brain. Um, and that's kind of how it started. Isn't that crazy? It's so it's super crazy. And so a little anecdote generates a tremendous amount of work and time and investment to do something for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. One little anecdote. I think it's amazing. So so we talk about psychologists and I, I think it's also before we jump into some of these things about medical education and medical students, we have psychology and we have psychiatry. And you talked about neuropsychology before, but What are the basic distinctions between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Sure. So that's a great question. A lot of people ask me that. Mm -hmm. Uh, A psychologist is a Ph.D. trained level clinician and a psychiatrist is a D.O. or an M.D. trained clinician. Um, A psychologist uses a lot more talk therapy. I guess you could consider longer term sort of 50 minute. Tell me about your mother sessions, though. It's changing. It's rapidly changing in the face of technology right now. We've got telehealth and all sorts of different sorts of um, counseling techniques. Psychiatrists do use a form of talk therapy and um, as well as medication. They can prescribe. We can't. Um, I'm not I'm not licensed in the state of Ohio, nor am I actually seeing patients right now because I'm spending time with our awesome students. But um, but yeah, so as psychologists and psychiatrists work hand in hand, really, um, and the research has shown that for folks with more of a severe type of mental illness, that the combination of, of talk therapy or psychotherapy and medication is the best form of treatment across the board. So is there, so I, I, I actually know some of the answers to this because I was an undergraduate psych major. So the fact of the matter is, is that when we talk about cognitive behavioral approaches to overall health versus psychopharmacological approaches, mm-hmm. would you, although I do see some overlap, there are psychiatrists who are very sensitive to cognitive behavioral therapy. In fact, mm-hmm. good psychiatrists really are. Mm-hmm. But it, they don't, they're, not, uh, they're not in opposition to one another, are they? Psychiatry and psychology are complementary. Would you agree? Absolutely. Can, Absolutely. You, can you talk about how that works in clinical practice? Sure. So actually, um, Dr. Kelly Kuhn, who's a colleague of ours here mm-hmm. at OUHCOM, um, she and I just did a pre-record for our new curriculum about um, some characterological difficulties. And so for some so patients that we might share, 
in a more severe form of mental illness. And I'm not talking about grief, bereavement, mild depression, or, or sorts of things that, that most all people go through at some form or another in their lives, but I'm talking more severe characterological patients. Um, for instance, what we would formally call borderline personality disorder. Um, those kinds of patients basically have a characterological problem that, that was abs- actually adaptive in their childhood. And then as they've grown and developed over time as adults, um, what used to work no longer works in terms of relationship management and mm. um, interpersonal relationships. And so in some forms, those there's co-occurring disorders. So maybe they might have a form of strong uh, anxiety or panic attacks or severe depression and or even something like a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia that's very well managed with with medication and in fact in the last two decades that i've been practicing off and on there's been profound advances in medication where people could will live very healthy normal lives Um, i've seen medications do absolute wonders with patients who 50 years ago wouldn't be able to function. Um, so psychologists and psychiatrists really do work in tandem to help not only the, the pharmacological difficulties or the, the chemical imbalances in a patient, but then they're able to come to a psychologist and talk about some of their interpersonal difficulties and some of their cognitive changes and how to shift their thinking to make uh, the relationships more healthy or just kind of stabilize whatever's going on in their life at the time. Yeah, but it's not always the case. It's not, it is true that a person that needs a psychiatrist probably, oh, tell me if you agree or not. A person that needs a psychiatrist probably also needs to see a psychologist. I, I, I yes. I mean, I you have a bias, that, but obviously. Biased, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> but is it, yeah. it's not the case that a person that needs a psychologist necessarily needs to see a psychiatrist. No, not necessarily. Um, and the cool thing about my job, and I got the best job in the world, um, and the cool thing about my job is that I can see people from across the spectrum. So somebody who might have has lost a loved one and going through a, a, a time in their life of severe grief or somebody who's trying to manage anxiety. And they're not most of the people that I've seen aren't pathological. Um, I have worked on an inpatient psych unit, and, and that's a whole other spectrum of a patient population. But um, a lot of people, you know, I have a psychologist myself. A lot of psychologists have our own psychologists because, uh, especially for practitioners, which is what we teach our students, like if you're working with a high-need, high-volume population, um, oftentimes, you know, particularly with confidentiality and other issues, you're walking around with all these people in your head, all these cases in their pain. Um, and, you know, I think that much like medicine, I think psychology is um, – it's, it's a – uh, a very humble profession in the fact that people let you into their lives. And I think that it's, uh, it's very sacred. I think our work is very sacred. And um, in that comes putting these people in and, and feeling their pain, either it's psychic pain or psychological pain. And so being able to have another safe space to be able to kind of manage your own emotions along with the patients that you see, I think is really important. But sorry, long answer to your short question. Uh, we have to burn up 90 minutes. Well, sure, so okay. It's okay. Yeah. I want a long answer. <laughs> because because one of the things I hope uh, Rotations is, is, is a repository for people to get a really good overview of who the people are in these various things and why they do what they do and what it is about it that makes it valuable. And so I don't think that I don't think you can go on too long. Uh, so to speak, because if you if you get too long, I'll just talk about Papa Festival. But if you, right. it, it, but in the meantime, it's important to know this stuff. So keep going. It is well. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think psychology. One of the great things about psychology, right? One of the great things about being a clinician is that um, you know you work really long and really hard to try to figure out how to help whoever walks in the door. And I think that's why like working at HCOM is a really good 
good fit for me personally working with primary care physicians because primary care physicians, much like general psychologists, need to be able to basically treat whoever walks in the door and then know when it's beyond your scope of competency and know when to refer out. Um, But psychology uh, runs the gamut. And I think that, you know, people think about uh, psychology as illness, but it's not just illness. It's helping healthy people get even healthier. And it's helping smart people use their smarts to stay healthy. Um, and so there's a big psychology push towards resilience and positive psychology and uh, flow and creativity is one of my interests. Um, Sis Mahali write, writes a, uh, the thing about where, where the zone is, and he calls it a flow where um, people just lose track of time. When you're doing whatever you absolutely love absolutely. and you don't look at the clock, that's when you know you're in the zone. Absolutely. And it's important, I think, when people think about psychology to really also think about the positive aspects of psychology and that people people are living, messy beings and they go through downs and they go through ups, but it's the ability to manage that in in for me to be able to teach people to manage that better is is really an honor. I think it's awesome. I, I you know, I'm I just finished a book some time ago. Uh, we talk about the term resiliency, and I actually have changed my opinion about what I think about resiliency because the book is that I, I finished called Anti Fragile, and the premise of the book is that really life is chaotic. It's not episo- episodic um, episodic uh, periods of chaos. It's really mostly chaos, and then there's these relatively few areas of peace. And so resiliency typically is com- commonly associated with the idea of something awful happens to you in an otherwise peaceful life, how do you respond to that, or how do you rebound, f- rebound from that back to a normal baseline? The principle of antifragility says, no, you kind of live in chaos all the time, and occasionally you get some peace, but resiliency says that you can respond to that specific thing. Anti-fragility says that you just accept the fact that life is chaos and live within it. And it, it really is, when you get to thinking about it, you think about, you really don't know what's going to happen outside of a very small sphere of influence you have. Like, I can reach out three feet and touch something and make the light go on. But beyond that, I have very little control of what's happening out there. And so when we talk about those concepts of resilience or as I would had preluded to that, the idea of anti-fragility, building that in people and maybe helping them make sense out of the fact of, yeah, life's kind of like this and it's okay if you fail and it's okay if you get beat up and it's okay if you, what, what, what happens is building you into the person that can withstand that and keep moving. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think you're right on, right on the money, Todd. I just, you know, the people's baseline changes. And mm. um, I just, I read a quote somewhere and I don't know who said it. it basically, it's don't be afraid to suck at something new. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of that, Don. There's people who, and I'm talking, people are colleagues who really have a hard time with the, I, is it based, but I don't want to take away your steam here, but is it based upon a perception of the unacceptability of failure? That if I try this, I could fail and that would be awful? What's it based on? Because people are fearful of that stuff. How do you fix that? That's a great question. I don't know how to fix that primarily, uh, but, but what I think it is, I think it's fear. I think it's all fear-based. I also think that, you know, people get comfy mm. uh, and they get lazy, myself included. You know, you get good at something, you like to do it. Nobody rock my apple, co- apple cart, you know. I, and I think that, you know, if, some, if something is so big and so important, people are afraid to fail and smart people want to be good at what they do. Um, I think that's just a human nature. And so when you, when you, when you have that fear, it's just easier to kind of pull back inside yourself and just, you know, do what you're good at. Um, but unfortunately, if you're, if you're, if you're just stuck 
at the dock. You never go in, you know, the boat. I was just going to go that ships are safe in harbors, <laughs> yeah. but that's not what they're built yeah, to do, right? Yeah, that's what they're built to do. Exactly, <laughs> right? exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really easy to be tied up next to the dock and, and say, okay, well, this is where everything will go right. Right, right. But, but that's not a life well lived. Well, no, and I think it begets anxiety. I mean, I think mm. part of that is being being safe is is trying to control. And then if you're trying to be controlling, then you're, you're obsessed. You know, your OCD gets up and the more controlling you are, the more anxious you are. And it really is, I mean, it becomes a circular, toxic process. And so... Um, yeah, and, and to your point about baseline, I think that's a really interesting point because I was thinking about I, I did some work at the Veterans Hospital in Danville, mm-hmm. Illinois, Podunk, Podunk in the middle of Illinois, um, and I think people's baseline changes. Um, so the the concept that you in the anti fragility book about people's baseline changes, um, I think that's absolutely. Um, true. And I think that's over time. And I think developmentally, you know, I've worked with three-year-olds and I've worked with 83-year-olds. And I can tell you from a developmental perspective over, over the last 20 years, the people's baseline changes the older they get and the more the, the more crap that they've been through. Mm-hmm. And I think that builds for a hardier human being. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I've got working class roots, so I, 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 that's my bias. I'm putting it out there. But, you know, I think people got to, you got to fall down. Um, and, and, and in order to fall down, you get back up and then you start to trust yourself better. And I think one of the cool things about working here at Agecom is that you, we get these students and developmentally they're, you know, late adolescents, early adults for the most part. And, um, they're, they're smart, they're curious, they're driven, they're ambitious. And to, to be able to teach them to trust themselves Mm -hmm. and then watch that grow, even over the, the preclinical years, even though, even over two years, Mm -hmm. um, I just think it's 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 an incredible opportunity. So, the, so that's interesting. So, as a so you know, in simulation, the, the, every student, well, the first years next year haven't heard this yet, but they will hear it every time we do simulation. Is that the purpose of simulation is to fail catastrophically, <laughs> and the idea is is that uh, medicine is a very messy business, and you're going to have failures, and you're going to make mistakes, you're going to stick your foot in your mouth, and you're going to do all sorts of things that really, as you go home that day and driving in your car on your way home, you think, wow, I should have handled that differently, and that's okay. That's okay. As long as you learn early what you know and what you don't know and what you need to ask for help for to avoid major catastrophe, there's very few things you can't recover from with either an apology or an incident report or something and just say, yeah, I learned a lesson. I I just wasn't there. Um, But the students give you this sort of uncomfortable chuckle when you say that. And you say the purpose of SIM is to what? It's to fail catastrophically. And they all kind of uncomfortably chuckle about that because they don't fully embrace that. And they think maybe someone, I'm trying to fool them. And I have to explain to them, Look, you've achieved what you, I mean, other aside from residency acceptance, you're in medical school now. Mm-hmm. This is not trying to get into medical school. You're in medical school. So now let's take it down a notch and realize it's going to take about 30 seconds for me to think of 10 questions you can't possibly answer. So accept the fact that that's where you're at in this stage and be okay with it. Yeah. And be willing to fail so you can learn because a, a negative conditioning tends to be pretty powerful. And so it's like, well, if I fail, then I don't forget that, right? Yep. But we do that in a controlled environment that is uh, student-focused and, and conveys to students, we really care about you. And we're not going to let you drown, but we're going to make you swim a little hard. I mean, that, is, that, is that, that seems to be pretty effective, doesn't it? I, it is very effective. And I think it's really important that we teach our students to be okay with ambiguity and for screwing totally. up. Totally. And I, and I echo that sentiment. I tell them the same thing. I want you to screw up here so that when the time you, you are face-to-face with patients, then you don't screw up um, because you're not going to know what you don't know. And I think part of the learning process that's really cool to see 
is that, you know, right. And what I tell the students is, you know, right now your only competition is yourself. Mm. You've all competed with, with one another, but and then I add the little plug, and here's my little commercial about social sciences. You know, they want to be perfect, they want to be perfect, but you know what? Social sciences, communication strategies, motivational interviewing, psychology, building trust, a relationship with a patient, that's your eraser. So when you do screw up, because we all do, because we're like humans, that. it's your social science background allows you to make what we call in psych repairs. We, we mend those little bridges that we break with humans, that we break all the time, with spouses, with friends, with family, there's little tears, what we call them, tears and mends. And you tear and mend and tear and mend with the idea, just like a muscle that you build up and that scar tissue makes it stronger. Well, the more easily that the, our students can intuitively start to manage those trusting relationships, the longer they're gonna have their patience. Yeah, I love the idea that that's the eraser. That's a beautiful metaphor because it really is the more, and that's one of the problems of modern medicine is that, uh, although I think I just had a conversation today which was actually extremely encouraging that, some large health corporations whose names shall be nameless are thinking that well, maybe uh, as quality outcomes become more important, maybe it's important the doctors spend more time with their patients because time and sitting down and listening to your patient are how you build a bigger eraser and letting them know who you are and that you're just a person and you're, you're, you're a big brain person and you're trying to help them out. Yeah. And when you're an RVU generator and all you can do is get in and look at your electronic health record and not look at them in the face, that doesn't build a very big eraser. That right. just builds a negative association with going to medicine because no one listened to me. Right. So that raises the question, and, and um, we're getting close to the first segment end, but do medical students show up in medical school with an understanding of what psychology is really about? Oh, by the way, I forgot to, I didn't do you due deference. You are an assistant professor of social medicine. Mm -hmm. How come you're an assistant professor? Why aren't you an associate professor yet? Uh, I'm going up for a promotion right now. Tenure. As we speak. Well, promotion. Promotion, yep. As we speak, it's, a, it's on its way up the hill. What's the involved in that? A lot of papers and a lot How's of How's it different binders. than tenure, Don? Uh, because I'm a group two or a, a oh, non-tenure track. Yeah. So my primary job is to teach. So what did you have research. to do? I had to print off lots and lots of copies of things and student evaluations and thank you letters. and. Did you have big binders? I had huge binders. So huge that I put them in a giant blue bag so people could carry it around. It's terrifying, isn't it? It's, it's a little intimidating. Having gone up for tenure, I know exactly what it's like. Do you find out in April, too, whether or not? Yes, sir. Yep. So for those of you who don't know, the tenure process, I, know, I suppose, for um, a lecturer um, or a, 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 a classroom professor, it's purely that. It starts about November when a college decides whether or not they want you around any longer, and then it goes up to... Where does it go? No, it goes to the department. It goes to the department first, then and then the they, then they goes to the chair, and then it then goes the to the college, yeah. and then the then the college decides, do we want to keep Doctor Graham around? And then if they do, they put together this thing, and it goes up to the provost's office, and it is really it's six six to seven months of your life of just uncertainty and wondering what is going to happen to my world. <laughs> Would you say <laughs> it is? Yeah, <laughs> it when is. you put it that way, yeah, it is a little anxiety provoking. Yeah, but I will tell you that what's awesome is in April mm -hmm. when you get promoted, mm -hmm. which you probably will, because everybody loves you. I like your language, thank you. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> thank I'm, you. I'm channeling my inner Mr. Rogers. <laughs> the, the, it, is one of the, it takes you a full month to figure that out. When your letter comes, mm -hmm. it takes you a full month before you really think, holy cow, 
I, I'm oh, I'm okay. Like, they like me. They <laughs> really not, like they're me. They're not gonna. That's right. It's like, they, but yeah. So 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 your cat your your academic academy awards. They are going Sally Field. That's mm-hmm. right, Sally Fields. Obviously, they yeah. like me really. So anyway, so the fact of the matter is, is that yeah, it'll take. Tell me if it doesn't take a month before when you finally walk and you're, you're getting ready for work and you look in the mirror and you go, holy cow, I'm, a, I'm an associate professor. That's yeah. real. That's like legit. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm real. I'm a real boy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a real boy. A real girl. And then in the fall when you actually see your your commensurate increase in income from your promotion that's that, the that other then you go, yeah. holy cow oh, because you don't get to change but just because you get promoted doesn't mean you can change you have to wait until the new school year i think for us for a tenure faculty we had to wait till the new school year start before you could put your name block oh. and that was a real big stepping stone so oh. then when you see i'm not an assistant anymore i'm now an associate it's like you're it's like the calendar changing you have to change your checks it's like a big yeah to remember change. wow and then you really start thinking, I'm an associate professor. Wow, that's an awesome thing. I'm going to buy myself a bass boat. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> I, I think You're, I might. Because yeah, you like being in Lake Snowden? Well, I just like fishing. Because that's where the Pawpaw Festival is. Yes. Is that what it is? You want to get a bass boat? I like love a bass fishing. master? I, well, I don't need anything fancy. You I don't gotta, want I like gotta... the 75 miles an hour across no, the no. river going out to competitively bass fish? No, I'm a hillbilly girl. I've got actually a 53-year-old uh, aluminum sort of... Kind of not not a bass boat, but just a boat, and I have a little electric motor, and my honey and I tool around the local lakes, and that's bluegill. awesome. But bluegills aren't you can only eat bluegill. You well, can, or, you, yeah, you, can. you can. Of course, you can eat anything almost. But I mean, who wants to eat a bluegill? They're tiny. They're fantastic. You really? You think yeah, so? Over yeah. a bass? Well, no. I mean, bass are really good. <laughs> bluegill panfish. That's your way to go. Did you, did you did you fish in quarries in Indiana? Uh, mostly lakes. Some quarries. There's a lot of quarries. Yeah, there's a lot of quarries. There's a lot yes. of quarries in Indiana. Yeah. So, Don, I've run out of time on this. I do want, I got enough time to talk about Papa Festival. Okay. So, talk about Papa Festival. What do you do at the Papa Festival? Okay. So, well, because you're like a director or some kind of like central guru to this well, thing now. Thanks. I'm not that important. I just, I just corral the volunteers, but there's usually around 300 to 350 volunteers that run the fest, run this festival every year. Yeah. And it celebrates the native fruit of Appalachian, Ohio, which is called the pawpaw. And it tastes vaguely like? Uh, mango banana yeah. papaya ish it's a tropical fruit but it's got such a short shelf life that that's why you don't see them in your grocery stores and they have papa everything right papa everything beer ice cream beer, pies barbecue sauce barbecue papa chicken yeah, yeah. and how many people show up at the papa festival um roughly ten thousand. because you know they got rid of numbers fest Yes. What's up with, I don't understand that. Like what happened? I guess they sold the property and they don't have a place to put it now. So they're getting rid of Numbers Fest, which was like an Athens thing. It was a thing. Yeah. But Papa isn't going away. No. And that's in Albany. Our friends, Chris and Michelle, they started it 20 years ago. Yeah. It's at Lake, usually at Lake Snowden. Yeah. And you drive by on Route 50, mm-hmm. America's Highway. Mm-hmm. It goes all the way from Baltimore or someplace in Maryland, mm-hmm. clear out to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. I, I, I used to drive on Route 50 when I was in California and didn't know it was out here. And it's right off Route 50 outside of Athens. This beautiful Lake Snowden. And you drive by and you know the Pawpaw Festival's going on because you look out there and it's just a sea of people. They all look like it's they're having awesome. a great time. There's a lot of tie-dye. Fantastic. A lot of tie-dye. And there's a lot of funny smells coming out of there a sometimes. Of, a couple of funny smells, but however, it's a Bluegrass. Bluegrass. Lots of music. Yeah. Lots of great music. Lots of kids. Yeah. So if you want to regionally, if you want a regional experience for Southeast Ohio that kind of encompasses kind of everything about the funkiness of Athens too, the Papa Festival is a good place to go. Yeah. It's a mix of all sorts of people. Yeah. Very cool. Like, yeah. And it's fairly family friendly. Even though the funny smells are in there, you never worry about your kid going to the Papa Festival no. as a family. No. Yeah. It's pretty cool. We keep track of them. Yeah. 
Are you going to talk to me some more when we come back? I would love to. Okay. So for everyone who's listening, I'm sorry I got kind of sidetracked, but that's one of the great things about working at OU is that we really have a very, very diverse group of faculty members. They're involved in all sorts of interesting things that I learn about. Uh, I've been here for a long time, and I still learn about new things that are going on. So uh, what I do is encourage you, if you're listening, share rotations with your friends. Um, you can pick and choose. We have different topics. But then comment about what you think is good and what you don't like. And, of course, you can get us. You have the the outro will tell you. You can get us at uh, Gmail, et cetera, uh, on Twitter. And uh, with that, I'm going to say thanks to Dawn. And uh, then we'll get her back on the second second rotations. Thank you very much. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisar Bakshi for Nisar Bakshi and at Rotations Pcast or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater.